0: By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to NetSuite.com GPS. NetSuite.com GPS.
1: This is GPS, the global public square. Welcome to all of you in the United States and around the world. I'm Fareed Zakaria coming to you live from New York. Today on the show, as scores of world leaders prepare to descend on the United Nations this week... We'll talk to the Secretary-General, Antonio Guterres. He's called the pandemic the greatest global challenge since World War II. The big question is, can the world's powers be persuaded to embrace a plan to vaccinate all of humanity? Let's be clear, all this is too little, too late. Also, what can the UN do to help the growing humanitarian catastrophe in Afghanistan? And in a stunning move, France recalls its ambassador to Washington. Why? I will ask the former ambassador, Gerard Arobe. Then, Justice Clarence Thomas said on Thursday that the Supreme Court may now be the most dangerous branch of the U.S. government. Meanwhile, many are asking whether the highest court in the land has become too political. I'll put all the big questions swirling around the court to Justice Stephen Breyer. But first, here's my take. On Tuesday, President Biden will make his first speech to the U.N. General Assembly. The address comes at a crucial moment in the Biden presidency and will have a particular impact on how it's viewed abroad. After almost eight months of watching policies, rhetoric and crises, many foreign observers have been surprised, even shocked, to discover that in area after area, Biden's foreign policy is a continuation of Donald Trump's and a repudiation of Barack Obama's. Some of this dismay is a consequence of the abrupt and unilateral manner in which Biden withdrew American troops from Afghanistan. A German diplomat told me that in his view, Berlin was consulted more by the Trump administration than by this one. Some are specific actions like the U.S.-UK.-Australia submarine deal which has enraged the French. But the growing concerns go well beyond any one episode. A senior European diplomat noted that in dealings with Washington on everything from vaccines to travel restrictions, the Biden policies were America first in logic, whatever the rhetoric. A Canadian politician said that if followed, Biden's Buy America plans are actually more protectionist than Trump's. Despite having criticized Trump's tariffs repeatedly, Biden has kept nearly all of them. In fact, many have been expanded since most exemptions to them have been allowed to expire. Key Asian allies keep pressing Biden to return to the Trans-Pacific Partnership, much praised by him when the Obama administration negotiated it. Instead, it's been shelved. Another striking example of Biden's surprisingly Trumpian foreign policy is the Iran nuclear deal, one of the landmark accomplishments of the Obama administration. Throughout his election campaign, Biden argued that Trump's withdrawal from that agreement had been a cardinal error, and that as president, he would quickly rejoin it as long as Iran would also move into compliance. In early 2019, Jake Sullivan, now Biden's national security adviser, described Trump's reimposing of secondary sanctions against Tehran as predatory unilateralism. But since he took office, Biden has failed to revive the deal and kept most sanctions on Iran. Having long argued against trying to renegotiate the deal, Biden officials now say they want to lengthen and strengthen it. So far, this Trump-Biden strategy has not worked. Iran's stockpile of enriched uranium went from less than 300 kilograms in 2018, after the deal, to around 2,500 kilograms today. Or consider policy toward Cuba. The Obama administration was bold enough to tackle one of the most glaring failures in U.S. foreign policy. Having isolated and sanctioned Cuba since 1960 to produce regime change in that country, the United States has instead strengthened Cuba's communist regime. Fidel Castro sparked nationalist fervor by blaming all of Cuba's problems on the embargo, and far from being toppled, he ended up staying in power longer than any non-royal leader on the planet. As with Iran, the costs of these policies have been paid by ordinary people. Obama began to relax these policies toward Cuba. Trump reversed course. Biden has kept in place the Trump policy and actually tightened sanctions. In a recent UN General Assembly vote condemning America's 60 year old embargo, the vote tally was 184 to 2. Israel was the only country to vote with Washington. Biden and his team often criticized Trump for his assault on the rules based international system. But how does one rebuild such a system while embracing naked protectionism, unilateral sanctions, limited consultations, and America forced policies? on stuff like vaccines and even travel. When I was returning from Europe last week, the British airline employee checking me in said nervously, I hope you have an American passport. I said yes, but asked why she seemed so relieved. She replied, oh, the Americans have made it a nightmare for Europeans to enter their country. And it seems so unfair because we have much higher vaccination rates and much lower levels of COVID than you do. She concluded in exasperation, It seems that these days you Americans just want a double standard that helps you no matter what others think. It doesn't have to be this way. Trump's selfishness should be the aberration. Biden can use the U.N. pulpit to return to his deep roots as an internationalist who understands that countries don't simply ally with America out of fear or bribes or narrow security concerns. They do so because its best presidents have articulated and pursued policies that, while always being attentive to U.S. interests, also tried to build an open, rule-based international order that helps others prosper and thrive. If Joe Biden continues his current course, though, historians might one day look back on him as the president who normalized Donald Trump's foreign policy. Go to CNN.com slash for a link to my Washington Post column, and let's get started. Unacceptable behavior among allies and partners. That is what the French government called the announcement of a new security pact between the U.S., Australia, and the U.K. this week. Seen as an effort to counter China, this new deal will help Australia to build a fleet of nuclear-powered submarines, among other things. But the French already had a deal to build submarines with their Australian allies, and they say this move was a stab in the back. On Friday, France took the exceptional step of recalling its ambassadors to Washington and Canberra. Joining me now to talk about this is the former ambassador to Washington, Gerard Arode. Um, Gerard, let me ask you first, the the reaction of France seems
2: genuinely one of shock. Isn't that right? Well, yes, it was a total astonishment. You know, the 30th of August, the Minister of Defence and Foreign Affairs of Australia were reaffirming the commitment to the contract. 30th of August. And suddenly, overnight, it's it's denounced. And on the top of that... It is announced after, obviously, our closest allies plotting in our back to, to kick us out of the deal. So you have the loss, and on the top of that, you have the deviousness of our closest allies against our major interest. Now, I think that the way that Washington would portray this, Biden officials would,
1: look, this is a big strategic play. It is intended to deter China. Uh, it's unfortunate that we had to to do this uh, in the way we did. My question is, was there was there a reason France could not have been part of the new uh, arrangement, maybe with a reduced contract or or even none at all? Because the United Kingdom doesn't seem central to it, uh, and yet Washington included it. Could France have been part of a of a of a new um, uh, contract where? The, the American uh, submarines were used, but France was still a defense partner in some way.
2: I think it's the right question, and actually, we, uh, the French ambassador, uh, who met the, the Secretary of State, who met the National Security Advisor, you know, ask raised the question, saying, "Not only we, as I have said, we lose the contract, but you we you kick us out of this strategic partnership because Australia Australia was also." our strategic partner our navies have been training together uh, and and we consider that australia was the pillar of our indo-pacific strategy
1: do you think that this will uh, result in europe having a more independent uh, strategy toward china and you know is, could the cost end up being that the eu does not fall in line with america's china strategy which strikes me as a big deal because on issues like trade, the European Union really is very powerful. On trade, we do live in a kind of tripolar world.
2: You know, uh, Farid, I I don't think that this storm uh, will have major consequences in Europe because for most of Europeans, it's it's a French problem. But we have also to see the sequence because as you said, you know, Trump was hostile to Europe. And basically, we have the impression that Biden doesn't care. Uh, You know, we had, of course, we had Afghanistan, but also when President Biden came to Europe, there was no proposal of cooperation coming from the American side. And since then, it's very difficult to say that there is a European policy of this administration.
1: Uh, And finally, uh, Gerard, do you think that when this all, all is said and done, will, will we be able to get back to some level of normalcy? I mean, France and the United States are long allies. They have had breaches like Suez, Vietnam, the Iraq War, or is this something more lasting, you think?
2: No, I think our common interest to work together, but, you know, there is no love. There is only proof of love. So I think that the American administration as to show that is as i have said that they consider that the europeans are real partner uh, in a common endeavor and and we are still uh, waiting for that
1: but in order to let's say the, the united states has another big foreign policy initiative uh, and it wants france to come on board uh, does, th- does does this make it harder because You know, if you have you have your own populism, you have your own nationalism. Does it make it harder for President Macron to support the United States, particularly on something controversial, because his opponents will say, well, clearly the Americans don't care
2: about France? No, I think you're right, Farid. And especially because in France, we are entering into an electoral campaign. The presidential elections in France are in April uh, next year. And uh, we are a democracy, so it's obviously, it will make things more complicated to President Macron.
1: Gerard always a pleasure to hear you. Uh, always give us great insights. Thank you, sir. Thank you, Farid. Next on GPS. Global recovery from COVID-19 will be at the top of the agenda at the UN General Assembly this week. Can leaders come together and make a plan to vaccinate the world? I sat down with the U.N. Secretary-General, Antonio Guterres, in the Security Council chamber this week. That interview, when we come back. (laughs) On Tuesday, world leaders will converge on United Nations headquarters in New York for speeches, meetings, conferences, and more, all part of the annual U.N. General Assembly. Despite the fact that the host country, the United States, asked other nations to keep their delegations home to avoid turning the gathering into a super spreader event. leaders of more than 100 nations are still expected that's well over half of the UN membership playing host to them all and trying to gather consensus on solving the world's most pressing problems will be my guest Secretary General Antonio Guterres Mr. Secretary General pleasure to have you on welcome it's an enormous pleasure to be with you again in this room So, people often said, the thing we need to get global cooperation is a common enemy. The pandemic is a common enemy. COVID is a common enemy. Yet, it has actually led countries to do the opposite of cooperating. Why and is there any chance, are you seeing signs that there is greater cooperation beginning? There are some
0: positive signs. Uh, We had uh, the IMF together with the World Bank, the um, uh, World Health Organization and the World Trade Organization proposing a program of $50 billion to allow for an increased vaccination in developing countries. Uh, I know President Biden is uh, uh, convening a summit uh, to try to increase substantially the amount of uh, uh, vaccines available to the developing countries, but let's be clear, all this is too little, too late. And the fact is that the international community was not able to come together in relation to the uh, to the COVID. Uh, we had different strategies by different countries. And we have this uh, absolutely unacceptable situation in which a country like mine, that was very successful, is now 80 as 80% of the population vaccinated. That's
1: Portugal, and, Portugal. Most, of, and most of Europe is. Uh, yeah. And uh, we have countries in Africa with less than two percent. I mean, when I look at it realistically, it seems to me the only strategy that would work would be a joint U.S.-Chinese one, because only the Chinese companies are going to be able to produce. The billions of vaccines you need, the, the, you know, the Western companies, those vaccines are spoken for already. There is no prospect, is there, of a co- cooperation between the United States and China to vaccinate the world?
0: I'm very worried about it. I mean, I think we have two divides in the vaccine question. We have a North-South divide in which the North took care of its population and forgot largely about the South. And the South feels that this is terribly unfair and this increases the mistrust of the global South in relation to the global North. And there is the geostrategic global divide, which is now centred in the relationship between China and uh, uh, the United States. Uh, Since the beginning, uh, uh, and and talking with both sides, uh, I've been saying that there are areas in which there is no possible agreement. There are areas in which a confrontation is inevitable. Human rights is one of these areas. There are some geostrategic questions related, for instance, the South China Sea or Taiwan. There are areas in which there are different positions, and it will not be easy to overcome these differences. There is an area where I believe there should be effective cooperation, climate. And then there are areas in which I believe a negotiation is necessary, a serious negotiation, because there are different interests, but at the same time, there are common interests, Uh, and this is related to trade and technology. Now, uh, we have seen that uh, the areas of confrontation have dominated the relationship. We have seen that uh, in climate, the efforts uh, uh, of john kerry have largely failed because the chinese have said at a certain moment well we cannot have uh, 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 cooperation on climate and on anything else And on trade and technology, there has not been an effective negotiation. I think we are still on time to do that. I think think my appeal for both sides is to, okay, we have the differences, the differences are clear, and we need to keep those differences. And we need, of course, in relation to them, to express very strongly our positions. But we need to find areas in which we can seriously negotiate. And trade and technology are the two areas, in my opinion. And that would create an environment in which then the cooperation on climate or the cooperation on vaccines could become possible i think the present situation in which we move to to totally confrontational uh, um, uh, countries is a situation that is dangerous for the world. And then the risk of the economy to be uh, a decoupled economy with two different sets of rules in two different parts of the world uh, with uh, two different dominant currencies one day uh, with um, two different strategies on artificial intelligence on uh, the digital world and then uh, inevitably sooner or later uh, two conflicting strategies from the military and the geostrategic uh, uh, dimensions. And this would be, of course, very dangerous. I believe that we need to avoid a new Cold War because the old Cold War was more easy
1: to manage. It was clear. Now things are more complex. When you tell the Chinese government that they should allow the WHO to conduct a proper investigation of covid what is their response? Their
0: response is that the investigation was already done properly. I mean, uh, so this is a matter of
1: uh, different opinion. But uh, do you know that it wasn't? I mean, the I, WHO I says they did that, not have uh, There
0: were aspects uh, of, the, uh, of a full investigation related to the kind of data that is produced uh, in which uh, what the WHO is uh, now requiring makes sense. And the Chinese are not allowing that? As far as I know, for the moment, uh, they have refused these new requirements made by the, the World Health Organization.
1: Next on GPS, Secretary General Guterres on the American withdrawal from Afghanistan and whether the UN would work with the Taliban. We are back here on GPS. Here is more of my interview with UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres. We talked in the Security Council chamber. The mural in the background offers a vision of a world of peace. But I was interested to hear his thoughts on a currently war torn nation. Mr. Secretary General, let me ask you about Afghanistan. You recently said that it was a fantasy to imagine that the United Nations would be able to handle the Afghan problem. And yet, There are really, at this point, no governments even recognize the Taliban. Um, Very few are willing to provide aid that would help Afghans from, uh, you know, from entering into kind of starvation and poverty at a massive scale. Isn't the solution for people to be, for countries to be able to give the United Nations the money so that no one says that they are supporting the Taliban? And then the United Nations finds a way to distribute that aid to ordinary Afghans, or is that impossible? No, but that's exactly what we're asking for.
0: Uh, uh, We have sent to Kabul, uh, uh, the emergency relief coordinator and head of our uh, humanitarian affairs uh, sector, uh, who was the first... uh, personality at ministerial level that went to Kabul and spoke with Baradar, with Akhanes, I mean, uh, with all those that matter. What I said uh, about the fantasy is that you cannot ask the UN to solve all the problems that many countries with hundreds of thousands of soldiers, with trillions of uh, different currencies, and with all the means at their disposal, for decades were not able to solve. And to say, now the UN goes there and solves everything. They have an inclusive government, they will have uh, a full respect of human rights, they will have—they uh, will stop all terrorism for all activities. I mean, let's be honest, we have not the capacity to do that That all the others failed for decades what we can do and we are doing is to engage with the taliban first of all for humanitarian aid to be distributed and to make them understand that to have solidarity from the international community and to be able one day to have recognition from the international community, they need to deliver on the aspects that are very important for us, the human rights for girls and for women, women the right to work, girls the right to be at school at all levels, that it will be very important for them to cooperate with the international community to avoid uh, uh, Afghanistan to be a safe haven for terrorists. And These are things we can naturally engaging with them advocate for, uh, but we have no illusion. The situation is unpredictable, and if someone today says that they know exactly how Afghanistan will be in three months' time, I think it is probably a
1: prophet without much credibility. But let me ask you, in in, in the conversations that UN officials whom you have sent to Kabul, in the conversations with the Taliban, what is the impression you are forming of the
0: taliban i think one thing is the conversation with a number of leaders and those conversations were very positive the other thing is what exactly is the taliban movement in its entirety and we have witnessed that in different parts of the country there are different behaviors Uh, and we have seen that the formation of this uh, government has not yet been possible because there are divisions among the taliban leadership this what what was created was not a a, a final government was a kind of a preliminary government so in my opinion, the situation is unpredictable. And because it is unpredictable, it's important to engage. And at the same time, because the Afghan people is suffering, it's important to support the Afghan people. If we do those two things, we might succeed, we might not, but it's our obligation for the UN that has been there since 47 until now and was there during the first Taliban regime. It's important
1: for us to stay and to deliver. Finally, um, do you feel uh, at this point in the pandemic, just to come full circle, do you feel at this point in the pandemic um, more hopeful uh, that there will be some international effort uh, or less hopeful than you were a year ago?
0: No, I think that now the situation became so obviously threatening for everybody with these variants. I think the Delta variant was a lesson uh, too many, including where we are in the U.S. Uh, And uh, uh, there were recent news about uh, other variants that might put into question uh, the vaccines we have. I think now there is a conscience that if we don't address quickly the problems of those areas of the world in which the virus is still spreading like wildfire, we risk to have the COVID as a permanent problem, like the flu. And this, with the impact that we are seeing in the global economy, this is something we need to avoid at all costs. And I think there is a growing conscience that this is the case. And I hope that in the next few weeks, there will be effective progress in relation to the vaccination
1: programs. Mr. Secretary General, pleasure to have you on. Thank you very much. It was a great pleasure. Next on GPS, Justice Stephen Breyer of the United States Supreme Court. Many say the current court is too political. He says they are wrong. His argument when we come back. This month, the Supreme Court decided not to intervene to stop a Texas law that dramatically restricts abortion rights. The decision was seen by many as a result of President Trump's appointment of three justices, which shifted the court to the right. My next guest wrote a strong dissent in the Texas decision, Stephen Breyer votes consistently with the court's liberal wing, and yet he believes that in order to maintain its influence, the court must be apolitical and seen as apolitical. It's a belief he defends persuasively in his new book, The Authority of the Court and the Peril of Politics. Justice Breyer joins me now. Welcome, sir. First, I have to tell you, this is a terrific book. You've done a lot of interviews and not a lot of people have talked about the book. So I want to begin by recommending to people, this is really a terrific book. Um, Thank you for writing it.
3: Well, thank you. Thank you very much. I'm glad you read it.
1: Let's start with your central premise, which is that the Supreme Court has a surprising amount of authority, uh, is many ways seen as a kind of pivotal player in American politics, Despite the fact that it has no power, as, as Alexander Hamilton said, you quote him, uh, don't worry about the Supreme Court, it has neither the power of the purse nor the sword. So what gives the court its authority?
3: Ultimately, it's the people in the United States, 331 million of them, 330 million are not lawyers, but ultimately those people have decided that they want to live together, every race every religion, every point of view imaginable. And they have decided they want to live in one country together under law. That's an amazing thing in the history of the human race. And this document, the Constitution of the United States, is really the basic law that they have decided will hold them together. And the Supreme Court does, typically. Have the final word as to the meaning of the words in this document. So, it wasn't always as easy as this. And you
1: you point, for example, oh, no, to it uh, you point to the decision in uh, eighteen twenty nine. I think the, the 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 case was basically um, the Georgia discovered that there was state of Georgia discovered there was gold and land that was uh, Cherokee Indian land uh, it had been given to the Cherokees by treaty. The Georgia takes it. The Cherokees take Georgia to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court rules in favor of the Cherokee Indians. um, And then
3: what happens? Well, that's the case where even though John Marshall, the Chief Justice, and the others decided that Northern Georgia belongs to the Cherokee Indians, the president, Andrew Jackson, supposedly said John Marshall, the Chief Justice, made his decision. Now let him enforce it. And he sent troops, the president, to northern Georgia to enforce the decision, no, rather to kick out the Indians. And they marched along the Trail of Tears, many dying, to Oklahoma, where their descendants live to this day. So it took a while. And there have been some terrible decisions of the Supreme Court. Red Scott. Terrible, Plessy v. Ferguson that started segregation in the South, terrible. But there also have been some high points. Brown versus Board of Education, there must be integration. Legal segregation is great. But you point out, you point out Justice Breyer. The, your, your section on Brown is also
1: fascinating. Brown v. Board of Education. Uh, saying that separate but equal is not okay, you know, you have to integrate the schools, is 1953, uh, 1954, sorry. Um, for three years, nothing happens. Uh, nobody nobody observes the, nobody uh, follows it. And then in 57, a federal judge tells Arkansas that it has to admit nine black kids into an all-white school. Um, Tell that story of what, how, how close a call it was, because even then, people didn't want Eisenhower to try to enforce this decision.
3: Well, it was a great decision of President Eisenhower that he would send a 1,000 paratroopers, 101st Airborne, from Fort Bragg to take those children in the school, but they couldn't stay forever. And when they left, the authorities in Little Rock tried to end integration and go back to segregation. And the Supreme Court said, no, all nine justices said you must integrate now. Well, those are nine people. Those are nine people. There could have been 900 judges. And there were a lot of people in the South who didn't want to. And so what I think happened is that was the era of Martin Luther King. That was the era of the Freedom Riders. That was the era when the North, the entire country, woke up, woke up to the injustice of segregation. And they wouldn't have gotten anywhere, the judges, if it had not been for all the people who aren't judges to begin to decide to bring justice to the South. No more legal segregation. And I told that story to a woman who is the president of the Supreme Court of Ghana and wants Ghana and wanted Ghana to become more democratic, to become more civil rights oriented. Why do people do what you say, she asked. And I said, you have to convince the people in the villages, in the towns, the millions who are not lawyers, that it is in their interest to follow a rule of law. And that means not just the decisions you like, but also decisions you don't like. Like Bush v. Gore. I dissented in Bush v. Gore, but I heard the Democratic leader in the Senate, Harry Reid, say the most remarkable thing about that opinion is people followed it without guns, riots, stones in the streets. And when people think too bad there weren't, I mean, I thought it was wrong. And when I hear them say, well, too bad there weren't a few riots, I say, hey, it's not too difficult to see what happens in countries and in places and in times when people don't follow a rule of law. It's terrible. So it's a miracle. It's a miracle this country in, in, in that respect.
1: We're gonna take a break and when we come back, I wanna to talk to Justice Breyer about precisely Bush v. Gore, this pivotal case that may have changed the image of the court and may have left a long legacy. All that when we come back. And we are back with Justice Stephen Breyer of the Supreme Court of the United States. Justice Breyer, you were talking about Bush v. Gore, and I want to ask you a question about it in the context of your central argument. Your central argument, correct me if I'm wrong, is that we shouldn't think of judges as political in the way we do. Yes, they have differences. But those differences are not partisan political, they are jurisprudential. They are based on how people see the, uh, the constitution and, and law and things like the original intent of, that, of those laws. So when you look at Bush v. Gore, this is the case that I think changed many people's view about that. Because the constitution is pretty clear that the states get to decide who their electors are. In fact, that's what Republicans are now using as a way to allow states to do whatever they want with the electors. Almost, no, you know, in some cases, no matter what happened uh, in the election, that states states get to choose their electors. In Bush v. Gore, the conservatives who normally take the position that states' rights are important and state authority must not be, over, you know, overridden by the by the federal government, those conservatives switched. And they ended up saying, no, in this particular case, we, the Supreme Court, we, the federal government, have authority that trumps the state. And and to a lot of people, it looked like justices like Justice Scalia were completely reversing their long-held jurisprudential view to achieve a political outcome they wanted, the election of George W. Bush. Didn't that damage the court's legitimacy more than anything I can imagine?
3: I can imagine worse things. What about Plessy and Ferguson? What about separate but equal? But go back to the point. It would take me a while to convince you, more time than we have. But the Constitution says that each state shall appoint in such manner as the legislature thereof may direct the electors who will vote for the president, and the majority of five thought that uh, the lower courts in Florida had not done what the legislature directed. I didn't agree with that one little bit. But the people who were in dissent, and there were four, two were appointed by Republican presidents, and two were appointed by Democratic presidents. I mean, I've never seen people trade votes on the Supreme Court. They haven't. And I can think of a lot of cases even recently. We recently decided that uh, uh, gay people cannot be discriminated against by their employers. And the five that made that up, well, four are what you might call, quote, liberals, and one of them was not, was what you might call a conservative. Three times the Supreme Court has upheld Obamacare, and uh, we did that recently by a vote of 7-2. to two. So some cases come out uh, in ways you, the political party, one or the other might favor, and some do not. Those differences of judicial philosophy, you pay more attention, complete attention, as Justice Scalia liked to do, to the text. Or do you also bring in, as I might like to do, consequences and purposes and values. The word liberty in the Constitution does not define itself. So there are many jurisprudential differences, and it isn't totally jurisprudential, but it isn't really right to say that it's political in the ordinary sense of politics so you'd have to read this book with some care as you've done in order to see the complexity and nuance there so is this ideal of a non-political court uh,
1: of a nonpartisan court so important to you that you are willing to risk the fact that your successor might undo much of what you regard as the good you've done and might take the court and the country in a very different direction.
3: Now, what you're doing is asking about will I retire, and eventually I will. (laughs) I don't want to die there in office, and I haven't decided exactly when, but there are a lot of considerations, and uh, I hope I take them all into account properly, and when the time comes to announce something, I will, but not here now. (laughs) Well, I think, as
1: I said, this is a
3: terrific book. And,
1: you, you, you know, the central point you make, which is that the court's authority is this kind of mystical thing and should be, should be preserved, is so important. Uh, Stephen Breyer, pleasure to have you on, sir.
3: Thank you very much.
1: Thanks to all of you for being part of my program this week. I will see you next week. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast.